0: I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. The show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy, and on Twitter at HDX Academy. My guest today is Frank Lechner. Frank is a professor of sociology at Emory University, which is where I recently finished my PhD. I took a theory course with Frank during my second year, and I was very impressed with his mastery of classical sociological theories. And Frank is known more broadly within the sociology community for his work on globalization. He's the author of four books and two edited volumes. His most recent book is The American Exception. It's a book about American exceptionalism that covers several aspects of American life, including politics, religion, law, sports, and the media. I invited Frank to the show in part to have a dialogue about a piece I published about asymmetric polarization in America. We also discussed a first year seminar on conservatism that Frank taught in 2016. To my knowledge, that's the first seminar of its kind at Emory. The essay about asymmetric polarization that we discuss is one that I published in late 2016. Frank disagreed with many points in the essay, which is why I invited him to the show. The essay is entitled To My Undergraduate Class on the 2016 Election. I was teaching a class on the sociology of happiness at the time, and I wrote this essay to expand on what I said to my class. I published this essay on Medium, and Lee Jussum published a copy of it on his blog, so you may have read it on one of those places. If you haven't read it, you can find it online by searching for, quote, to my undergraduate class on the 2016 election, end quote. Now, the essay doesn't exactly represent what I said to my class. What I actually said to my class was quite brief. I wrote this essay afterwards and then sent it to my class to read if they wanted to. And the essay primarily makes two points that I made in class. The first is about ideology quite broadly. The first point is that liberals, libertarians, and conservatives appear to have different moral foundations, and this is one reason they misunderstand one another. I drew on Jonathan Haidt's research here, and I included a link to his TED talk, The Moral Roots of Liberals and Conservatives. The second point is that political polarization is happening across a number of countries, which is leading to tribalism in some countries. I argued that polarization itself isn't a problem because polarized parties can still reach compromises, but that refusal to compromise is a problem. And drawing on research by Norm Ornstein and other political scientists, I argued that the Republican Party in the U.S., unlike conservative parties in many other countries, has become a radical party, that doesn't respect the legitimacy of the Democratic Party, and moreover, that the Republican Party has violated many norms that were previously respected by both parties. I also pointed out the problem of false equivalence, or both-siderism, which is the problem of treating both parties as equally responsible for government dysfunction. Now, since some of you have not read the essay, what I'm gonna do is read the entire essay here. If you wanna skip the essay, jump to 12 minutes and 40 seconds into this podcast. The preface. Although I was initially reluctant to talk about election results, the election of Donald Trump was unusual enough that I felt obligated to explain its significance to my class. This essay expands upon what I said to my class. I have published it here because it may be useful to others in the academic community, particularly those who teach students of a variety of nationalities, a fairly common situation at private universities in the U.S., and those who teach students who uniformly adhere to one political ideology. The essay. I've been mulling over whether to talk about the election in class. Because we have so much material to cover already, I decided not to do that. But, given many responses to last week's assignment on negative cognitive distortions, I also realized that the results of this election matter to your happiness. Here are a few points that may help you make sense of the election, especially if you've traveled internationally or plan to live outside the US. My first goal is to explain the ways in which America resembles other countries in terms of its political diversity, and why such diversity arises. My second goal is to explain why the current American political scene is unique, which may help you make sense of the election of an extremist candidate like Donald Trump. Liberals, conservatives, and libertarians. Political ideologies are driven by different fears and different stories. Liberals are afraid that people at the bottom of society or the margins of society will be oppressed. Conservatives are afraid that people will detach themselves from nationalistic and religious obligations that prevent society from descending into chaos. They would prefer to have a society that is aligned with traditional and divine edicts. Libertarians are afraid that people who are vested with authority will abuse it, inhibiting the efficiency and economic growth that arise when individuals have freedom. Many researchers have attempted to explain this diversity, and one cogent theory posits six moral foundations. Harm, fairness, national loyalty, sanctity, hierarchy, and liberty. Everyone cares about these foundations, but for conservatives, concerns about sanctity, hierarchy, and loyalty are just as important as concerns about fairness and harm, whereas for liberals, fairness and harm are most important. Libertarians primarily value personal liberty. These distinctions matter because they can be partially traced to heritable differences between people. Other factors matter too, of course, and cultures vary. Conservatives in India and China are not interchangeable. But heritability indicates that globally, most people will be somewhere in the ideological middle, but some will be markedly liberal, conservative, or libertarian. If you fail to appreciate the foundations of these differences, people will seem crazy, stupid, ignorant, or immoral. This talk by Jonathan Haidt explains moral variability further. This is the point in the essay in which I insert the link to Jonathan Haidt's TED Talk. Appreciating political variation may also help you understand politics in whichever country you spend your adult life. If you live in a two-party country, you will likely find a split between the liberal party and a conservative party. In the US, libertarians tend toward conservatism because libertarians believe that people should be rewarded in proportion to their economic contributions and conservatives in proportion to virtue. Hence, both tolerate inequality In European nations, you may find liberals and libertarians clustering together because they both reject authoritarianism and religious orthodoxy. If you live in a multi-party nation, you'll find more segmentation. A conservative party may be nationalistic or religious, and it may be very conservative or just slightly conservative. Nevertheless, parties will fit into a similar ideological map. Global polarization and American polarization. Despite these general trends, there are two unique things about the current era. First, many nations have undergone polarization. One consequence is that people have sorted into ideological tribes based on which political party they support, and these tribes have mutual disdain. Nevertheless, polarization does not itself cause problems when politicians are willing to compromise. Ultimately, parties need to be responsive to voters, and politicians are inclined to compromise as a result. Yet compromises require mutual respect, and the U.S., along with a couple of other nations, has a unique problem. In the U.S., political science research shows asymmetric polarization. The Republican Party has become a radical party that has discarded the idea of respecting the opposition. Politicians have never been saints, but they have historically respected traditional norms of how to govern. Even though these norms are absent from the Constitution, they have enabled cross-party compromises. Conservatives have usually been more respectful of these norms. At the national level, the Republican Party, thanks in part to Georgia Congressman Newt Gingrich, began to discard these norms about two decades ago, which is around the time you were born. Some of this has trickled down to the state level and lower, but it's more difficult to generalize at that level. Describing this change, two veteran political scientists, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann, have written this frequently quoted summation. Quote, the Republican party has become an insurgent outlier in American politics ideologically extreme, contemptuous of the inherited social and economic policy regime, scornful of compromise, unmoved by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. Here's a summary of Ornstein and Mann's book, and here's a lecture by Ornstein on this topic. At this point in the essay, I link to a summary of Ornstein and Mann's book and Norm Ornstein's 2014 Lambeth lecture at UNC Chapel Hill some people disagree with this assessment and you can find ornstein debating an opponent here at this point i link to an aei debate entitled is the republican party too extreme i agree with ornstein's assessment the democratic party has done some problematic things but it hasn't discarded norms to the same degree and it has respected the legitimacy of the republican party evident in the greater willingness of democrats to compromise with george w bush than of Republicans to compromise with Barack Obama. Because of this radicalization, Democrats cannot be responsive to voters when they are elected to govern. According to the new logic of the Republican Party, Democratic politicians should be voted out if they accomplish nothing. So for electoral victories, it pays to ensure that Democratic politicians accomplish nothing. Voters then become angered about the lack of governmental responsiveness and elect Republicans instead. This politics of rage has produced more radical presidential candidates among Republicans, culminating in Donald Trump. Washington Post commentator E.J. Dion traces that trajectory in a recent book summarized in this short video. At this point, I link to a summary of Why the Right Went Wrong by E.J. Dion Jr. False equivalence is the term for the common practice of blaming Republicans and Democrats equally for political dysfunction. You may recall that equality and proportionality are two different modes of interaction. The false equivalence narrative is based on equality. According to this narrative, blame must always be distributed evenly. Republicans and Democrats must therefore share responsibility for government dysfunction. This narrative pervades media reports and it holds sway among many knowledgeable people. Most of these people have decided in advance that equality is the correct quote, unbiased, unquote, framework, so facts do not dissuade them. Incidentally, a similar allegiance to equality can be found when people discuss rewards or punishment across ethnicities or genders. Some people decide in advance that equality rather than proportionality is the correct framework, so they are rarely persuaded by proportionality-based arguments about why gender or why one ethnic group is overrepresented in some outcome. Equality is not a sensible baseline in a proportional system. The issue of false equivalence may seem tangential, but I mention it because the pull of that narrative is strong and because Democratic retaliation can be misrepresented. Also, some people will persistently accuse you of bias if you don't fall in line with that narrative. Note that I am not making a binding judgment against voting for Republican candidates at the national level. I would recommend against it because they have broken a system in which Congress can function. Nevertheless, if you believe that Republican extremism will solve the challenges that Americans face, you should vote Republican. But keep in mind that the Republican Party in the U.S. is not like the Conservative Party in the U.K., the Conservative Party in Canada, the National Party in New Zealand, or the LNP of Australia. Those parties respect the norms of government. In many nations, there's an anti-establishment swing, which has led to the election of extreme left-wing and right-wing parties. But in these cases, too, the victorious parties, for the most part, respect traditions when it comes to keeping government functioning and responsive. Some of them may become radical over time, but that has yet to happen. Conclusion Superficially, the two halves of this essay seem to swing in opposite directions. The first half encourages you to respect your political opponents, whereas the second half is a condemnation of one type of political party. The primary difference is that the first half concerns the public and the second half concerns politicians. The public is usually split based on tendencies towards conservatism, liberalism, and libertarianism. Sometimes these tendencies take destructive paths. Communism or fascism are obvious examples. But for the most part, you can respect opposing beliefs instead of interpreting them as evil. However, politicians are different. In recent years, for instance, the Republican Party has disenfranchised voters to win elections, which is unequivocally immoral. I cannot resolve this contradiction, but I can point out that you may have to live with it. Wherever you decide to live, try to understand the difference between the public and the political class. If you're fortunate, you will reside in a country where each political party acts in good faith, but if not, you may find good people voting for a bad candidate. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris.
1: Thank you for having me, and thanks for all the great work you're doing for Heterodox Academy.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I want to talk to you today, start by talking, about uh, my piece on the 2016 election, which you read and uh, commented on and sent me an email. My piece, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was uh, primarily an argument that within the U.S., and this was very U.S.-specific, the Conservative Party is more extreme than the Liberal Party. So part of my argument was this differs in other countries, but in the U.S., uh, I was primarily drawing on research by uh, Norm Ornstein. I made the claim that uh, the Republican Party, in terms of its tactics, is more extreme than the Democratic Party, and you felt that you weren't very convinced by my argument. So tell me a bit about what you thought. That's correct.
1: I was not convinced by your argument, and I was not persuaded by your framing of the issues. I don't- one of the reasons I responded to your article is that I thought it uh, lacked perspective and balance. And also as, a, as an intervention in the course, I think initially you wrote this piece for students. I thought it was somewhat counterproductive in the sense that you described Trump as an extreme candidate and faulted the Republicans for all kinds of political sins in a way that I think inhibited or would inhibit frank discussion if the purpose was to stimulate such discussion. But I thought I thought your, your piece lacked perspective in the sense that you wrote it at the at the end of 2016, I believe, after the presidential election, at a time when the Republican Party had achieved incredible success across the board and across the country. And here you go citing Norm Ornstein of all people, uh, describing who described the Republican Party as an insurgent outlier, which I thought was not exactly an appropriate way to describe a situation in which the Republican Party had achieved greater political dominance than it ever had since the 1920s. So I think, in that sense, I think your, your piece lacked a little perspective. You know, Republicans didn't just succeed in uh, grabbing the White House, but
0: were successful in Congress, in the States, in governorships, and so on. On the issue of being an outlier, I do think he meant that more in historical terms, that they were an outlier, uh, not so much an outlier in terms of popularity. Well,
1: I mean, I I question that. I question that standard. So if you Described the dominant political party as an outlier at the point when it has been most successful. I thought it was a misleading way to describe the actual results of the actual election. Also, I thought your, your piece liked balance in the sense that it attributed polarization and dysfunction, especially in Congress, almost exclusively to the Republicans. And I certainly agree that the Republicans contributed to some of that dysfunction. But I think after a period in which various Democratic politicians contributed that dysfunction. I thought, once again, it was a little bit one-sided. One One person I have in mind, for example, on the Democratic side is Harry Reid, who I think led the, the Senate in a very cynical and partisan manner and was just as contemptuous of traditional norms as you claim Newt Gingrich and his colleagues were.
0: I think the criticism of Harry Reid might be justified, but I don't think he's comparable to Newt Gingrich in terms of some of Newt Gingrich's most of Newt Gingrich's tactics. Uh, I'd say that, for one thing, Gingrich actively discouraged members of the parties from socializing with one another, uh, which was part of the culture of Washington up to that point. And that definitely led to some polarization. He instituted the tactic, and he was very clear about this, this tactic of constantly attacking the Democratic Party. And if there was a Democratic president constantly attacking that president, regardless of whether there was you know substantial evidence of any wrongdoing. So, if you look at the Clinton administration, for example, from the outset, there were these investigations based on very slim evidence that uh, Clinton uh, was engaged in wrongdoing. I'm talking about the Whitewater investigation. Uh, when the first round of the investigation showed that Clinton was not guilty, Gingrich just started a second round and demanded a new trial. So, um, And the first trial, incidentally, was a Republican judge. So I think this attitude of permanently attacking the other party, which you can trace to Gingrich, and which I still don't feel like you really see on the democratic side when you're talking about democratic elites. You definitely see it in terms of voters. But when it comes to democratic elite, elites, you, I think you still don't see that permanent attack mode. I think democratic politicians um, and elites tend to be more willing to compromise. And um, I think you also see this difference in the states. In state-level governments, often you don't have a person analogous to New Gingrich and you don't find that the Republican Democratic parties are constantly attacking one another. Well I find your comments somewhat ironic
1: after a year, more than a year, of constant attacks on the new Republican administration. Calls for impeachment, calls for resistance, continual investigation into so called collusion that I think outweighs anything that was ever done under the Clinton
0: administration. I think those investigations have actually been Fact based, if you look at the people who were actually conducting some of the investigations, uh, well, if you look at James Comey, a Republican appointee uh, who was fired by the Trump administration, uh, I think it's justifiable to think of that as rather suspicious. If you look back at the George W. Bush administration, on the other hand, I think you can see that he was able to get some of his initiatives passed through Congress by uh, reaching certain compromises with uh, Democrats in the House and Senate. Um, if you think of Medicare Part D, for example, and and other things, so I think if you look at the George W. Bush era, you see many cases of Democrats being willing to to compromise, and there was definitely at the voter level in, intense opposition to George W. Bush, but within Congress itself, there was there was criticism, but there was no permanent attack mode. There was no attempt from the outset to have something like the Whitewater investigation. I'm sorry Chris but that is outrageously wrong. Democrats across the
1: board vilified George Bush after those compromises on Medicare and also on education. And of course those compromises were in areas where George Bush expanded the role of government and expanded um, government government benefits in a way that many Democrats including Ted Kennedy agreed with. And I quite agree with you that that is a those were ev- that's evidence of compromise between Republicans and Democrats but when Democrats held a majority as they did in the first Obama administration, they discarded any interest in bipartisanship and used a majority to push through the Affordable Care Act in a, rather unconventional, in a rather unconventional manner. So my point is not to excuse the Republicans, but to simply make the point that polarization has happened in many ways across, across the decades, and that I think it is very one-sided to, uh, to blame the Republicans for undue polarization.
0: Um, the issue of the Affordable Care Act, I think people often look at the final votes and the fact that no Republicans voted for it, um, and also the use of the reconciliation method um, uh, as examples of a of lack of partisanship. And I think if you look at it procedurally, you see that in the Senate, there was a gang of six, a so-called gang of six with three Republicans and three Democrats who worked on the text of the bill um ultimately there likely would have been republicans voting for it apart from um intense pressure by the then uh republican senate leader uh mitch mcconnell who said that they would be uh you know severely punished if they did uh he kind of explicitly said that he wanted uh the affordable care act not to be bipartisan but you you can definitely see uh Negotiations happening during the Senate, where Republicans uh, gave their input into the into the Affordable Care Act, and um, I think the the use of reconciliation was partly because Republicans routinized the use of the filibuster, which then required sixty votes, which was very hard to get, and up till. I mean, if you if you look at a, the trend of the filibuster over time, you do see you know, Republicans this the spike every time Republicans are in the majority in the Senate, and then admittedly Democrats do retaliate. But because of this routinized use of the filibuster, I I think the only option they had. Well, see, so your I think
1: your whole framing of the issue as is Republicans doing something and Democrats retaliating is itself a partisan presentation of the actual process. Of course, the reason why. Democrats use the unusual procedure to pass the Affordable Care Act is that they? it's not simply the use of the, of the filibuster, but also the fact that Massachusetts elected a Republican senator to replace Ted Kennedy, partly out of discontent over the Affordable Care Act. And I don't blame Democrats for using their partisan advantage at a time to do what they wanted to do and to achieve their goals. I'm simply pointing out that that framing the the, the various disputes in Congress and the various Uh, Debates over various issues as simply a matter of Republican transigence and Democratic desire for compromise is a very partisan presentation of the facts.
0: So if you were to talk to your class about the 2016 election um, or the, the changes in the Democratic Party and Republican Party over the last 30 years, let's say since the Gingrich era, how would you describe them to your class?
1: Well, we actually did, discri- did discuss the results of the 2016 elections in my class on the sociology of conservatism, but in a very different way than you present in your in your piece. First of all, I I myself prefer to teach the debate. I, I prefer to have students make up their own minds and to consider arguments and evidence from many different sides. And so we focused more on the way in which Donald Trump, as a candidate, departed from traditional conservatism. We try to evaluate the way in which he may, he might or might not be able to achieve his actual policy goals insofar as he had coherent policy goals. And we tried to assess the political landscape in view of his somewhat unconventional candidacy. And so we focused not so much on you know, the 30 years prior, but on the actual situation that had been created by the 2016 elections. And of course, we had the advantage that in my class we had been talking about Conservatives, conservative policies and so on and so forth. And so the rise of a you might say populist candidate within the Republican Party raised all kinds of interesting questions that were that were worth discussing in that in that class. So we had a very good and I thought very productive discussion. But the, the basis for that discussion was that I myself did not put forth, you know, a, a particular partisan interpretation of the outcome of the election.
0: So in the class did you have some students who by examining the evidence uh, reached the conclusion that one party was more extreme either either party? Well I don't I did
1: not and they did not frame the discussion in terms of whether a party is extreme or not I think that is a somewhat useless epithet that is obviously useful for partisan purposes but that was not the goal of the discussion in my class. So we we did not use that kind of use that kind of language, and that is really not was really not the purpose of the analysis that we engaged in in the class. As I said, our, our focus was more on the way in which Trump departed from traditional conservatism and the kinds of complications that would follow from that, and also the difficulty that he would that he would face in carrying out his policy goals, insofar as he had clear policy goals. So it was a more dispassionate, you might say, analysis and, and discussion. With people of various uh, political persuasions of the actual political situation that existed, and frankly, this this whole notion of a one party being more extreme than another obviously depends very much on the particular yardstick that you, that you choose. And the, the choice of those yardsticks is always somewhat arbitrary. I think adjectives like extreme and so on are very useful in partisan discourse, but that really was not the purpose of the discussion in my class.
0: I think that's a fair criticism. I think extreme is an epithet. Maybe a better way to phrase it is I believe one party has discarded many norms that have previously helped Congress function. So the norm of, for example, of uh, treating 51 votes in the Senate as a sufficient majority to pass bills, Uh, the norm of uh, when a Supreme Court vacancy arises in the middle of a president's term due to a death, allowing that president's nominee to be considered. Okay, Chris, I I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. But Democrats have had many
1: opportunities to restore those norms, to demonstrate their commitment to those, quote unquote, traditional norms. But they did not do that. And the shenanigans of Harry Reid in the Senate in recent years, I think, show that, including the way in which he changed the procedures for handling judicial appointments. And as just one anecdote of his regard for traditional norms, I recall the way in which Harry Reid, on the floor of the Senate, accused Mitt Romney, presidential candidate, of tax evasion based on no evidence whatsoever. And in retrospect, was proud of that lie because it helped to prevent Mitt Romney from succeeding. So forgive me, but I I don't have a very high regard for the superior commitment of Democrats to the traditional norms of Congress in
0: particular. Okay. So let's take this into a future-oriented sense. What evidence would, would convince you in the future that the Republican Party has adopted more disruptive tactics or more partisan tactics, or that the Democratic Party has?
1: Well, I think all parties use partisan tactics. I think that is a truism, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. And whether a particular tactic is, quote-unquote, destructive, of course, again, depends on the particular standpoint or the particular yardstick that you that you use. And that, To some extent, that choice of yardstick is, to some extent, a partisan choice. There's no objective analysis of that, as far as I'm concerned. And so all these kinds of adjectives, I think, are are a little bit misleading and perhaps don't quite get at the actual dynamics of of real politics. But I, I, I guess one of the main points that I would make is that in terms of the actual distribution of power in the United States and the actual distribution of people holding office in the United States at the end of 2016, it was particularly striking, missing in your piece, that the Republicans held majorities in Congress, in most state legislatures, Held most governorships, as well as the White House, and so myself, don't think that that majority and that dominance is going to last. But but I think in terms of that actual distribution, it is the Democratic left that I think was more out of sync, you might say, with the center, the actual center of actual American politics at the time. So, if a blue wave happens in the next few years and Democrats become dominant in the same way that Republicans were dominant at the end of 2016, then I would be more inclined to say that the Republican Party is extreme in the sense that, or an outlier in the sense that the, the at least the right wing of the Republican Party is far removed of what would be the left of center, center of gravity in American politics. But as of 2016, I thought the, the center of gravity in American politics was right of center, well within the Republican Party, and by that standard. The standard of the actual distribution of power I thought the Democratic left was at least for the time being out of sync with the situation at that time
0: so you would say representation would be your your key um, to, to get back to my article just briefly I did include a parenthetical statement about how state level politics are different so I didn't want to get into that into too much detail and I think at the state level you can you know re- Republican in California is probably more liberal than a Democrat in Louisiana or Mississippi or Alabama. So state level, getting into state level politics is complicated. So I I agree that the fact that there have been, there are currently 35 Republican governors may indicate a conservative leaning in some sense, or a sense that maybe we need less regulation, we need to be a little more business friendly. But on the other hand, I feel like it's I feel like the state level and the federal level are so different, it's hard to conflate both of them and say, clearly, Republicans are ascendant because of the state level phenomena.
1: Well, I think the fact of the matter is that as of late 2016, at least for a while, Republicans had been ascendant. And that is a very striking fact. And the other thing that was missing from your piece, I don't mean to harp on the negatives, because I agree with you in some, some ways, the most striking thing that was missing from your piece was the opposition. That is the the fact that Hillary Clinton lost the election. And there again, I think your, your piece lacked perspective and balance. That is the election was just as much a referendum on Hillary Clinton and the kind of campaign that she had conducted as it was an affirmation of Donald, Donald Trump. So I think in that regard too, I think there's more, there was more to be said about what happened in 2016. And mind you, I am not assuming that that is in any way permanent. I expect the pendulum of American politics to swing in the other direction. And so I I think that our judgment of what happened in 2016 needs to be Uh, carefully circumscribed for that reason.
0: I think that's a fair criticism. I think uh, maybe three or four years down the road, we can look at it in hindsight and have a clear picture. So moving on to the uh, second topic I wanted to talk about, which is your class on conservatism. It's the first class of its kind at Emory. It was a freshman seminar, if I'm correct, and you taught it in the fall of 2013. Could you tell me a bit about how you shaped the syllabus for that class, why you decided to offer it, how it worked out? Sure.
1: I thought there was a need for a little bit more diversity in our course offerings pertaining to hot political topics. And I thought in particular, there was a need for a course that actually dealt with the actual ideas of actual conservatives. And so I designed that course with that basic goal in mind. That there would be at least one place where a small group of students would be able to be exposed to conservative ideas, conservative policies and so on, and be able to debate them honestly and and seriously. And so that was the that was the overall goal and we focused on you might say philosophical background philosophical ideas that inform contemporary conservatism. We dealt with legal conservatism, conservatism as it pertains to the welfare state, the administrative state, foreign policy, things of that sort. And because we um, held that class in the fall of 2016, we obviously also addressed a little bit the the conservative aspects of the Trump campaign or the lack thereof.
0: And how did you think the class went? Do you feel like you had a mix of liberal, centrist and conservative students and everyone came away with a better understanding of conservatism yes i th-
1: we had a very nice mix of quite conservative and quite liberal students who enjoyed arguing with each other and so the class i think was a, was a great success in that regard i think everyone uh, regardless of the political persuasions that they came in with really learned a lot about what the varieties of contemporary american conservatism are like and in that sense i think it opened their eyes to what is actually happening in What the the current state of conservatism, problematic as it is, actually is. And so I think it was very productive for the students. I enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. It opened their eyes, you know, again, regardless of their their prior background. And I think simply the experience of really arguing about particular conservative ideas and policies was itself invigorating, I would say, for, for all the participants.
0: And do you think you had some students who were in the class because they were personally interested in careers in politics?
1: Yes. There were a few students who were at least thinking about a career in politics. How did they find the course? Oh, I think they enjoyed it as much as all the other students. And I, I can't speak for them. You'll have to interview them someday about their their experiences in plants, But I think it at least gave them a firmer foundation for whatever future work they may end up doing.
0: Well, the reason I ask is I was wondering if it perhaps made them cynical, uh, not the topic of conservatism, but uh, just the topic of politics in general, and how it actually plays out
1: no I don't I don't think so. I mean first of all I, I, I try to avoid I try to avoid teaching in a way that makes students more cynical than they may already be. I tend to accentuate the positive, perhaps a little bit in the sense that I, I want my courses to be inspiring in some way. I don't always succeed, but at least I try. And I want students to have a good experience as part of their class as well and so and frankly I think the the, the level of debate and discussion and the, the real serious analysis that they did in the class itself I think mitigates any cynicism they may have about American politics I certainly did not sugarcoat the, for example the the difficulties that conservatism faces faces today and the, the fragmentation of conservatism and so on and so forth i mean the, the class was well aware of the of the, the problems that conservatism, as a as a movement, as a an ideology, um, is, is grappling with grappling with today. So, but I, but I don't think that grappling resulted in any greater cynicism. But you'll have to ask the
0: students. Do you think you'll offer the course again? And if you offered it again, do you think you would assign different readings or do anything differently?
1: Uh, definitely, I, I plan to offer it again next year, and I haven't quite decided about uh, changes that I might make. I myself am not a social conservative in, a, in any strong sense, but I do think I might include a little bit more representation of social conservatism. I noticed that there was a, a new, there's a new book by Patrick Deneen about the failure of liberalism, and I might I might pay attention to that. We focused in 2016 on the Supreme Court same-sex marriage case. I, I may, revisit that, but again, may declare that to be a a done deal, so to speak. So I'm not sure if I'll I'll continue debating that particular topic. We had a section on foreign policy. I may change that a little bit. But of course, one of the, the topics that we will have to address is the extent to which and the ways in which the Trump administration is actually pursuing conservative policies and how you might assess that from the point of view of traditional conservative criteria. So We'll delve a little bit more into the nitty gritty, so to speak, of the say, regulatory initiatives in the Trump administration, uh, judicial appointments, and, and things of that sort.
0: That sounds interesting. I wish I were an undergraduate again and I could take the course. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, there's some, of course, there are many ways in which I'm glad I'm not an undergraduate anymore.
1: I understand. I understand.
0: Uh, so I wanted to close by talking about uh, your experience as a conservative in academia. I took a course with you about three years ago. I didn't realize at the time you were conservative. So I admire how you, you taught the course in a completely nonpartisan way. But since you are a conservative, do you feel like your ideology has affected your success or not affected your success as an academic or affected the the extent to which people take your ideas seriously? I don't mean to come across as a contrarian with
1: regard to everything you say, but again, I question the framing a little bit in the sense that I don't think of myself as very conservative. I do sympathize with the views of many American conservatives, but I am more inspired by the European liberal tradition. I grew up in the Netherlands and I, i and in favor of significant progress and significant reform in a number of areas, and so I don't think of myself as a, a conservative in a traditional sense, and I resist that label a little bit. But for the sake of argument, I'll I'll accept this. I think your I appreciate your comments about my quote unquote nonpartisan teaching because in my day to day life I try to, in a sense, depoliticize the work that I do. I don't put my own views forward uh, in a very strong manner. I prefer to create a space in which students can analyze arguments and evidence as honestly and as seriously as, as possible and to provide them the tools and, if necessary, play the devil's advocate for whatever side needs needs my support or need, needs my articulation. And so I think in my day-to-day life, in my actual teaching, I don't take a, a strong, generally, don't take a strong political uh, posture more more generally, I occasionally speak up on political issues, issues on campus, and so people are aware that I have perhaps a slightly deviant point of view, a point of view that deviates from orthodoxy that reigns on most college campuses. But at the same time, I I don't fight any quixotic battles against the dominant culture.
0: That sounds like a like an assessment in which you uh, you feel like it has not in in many ways affected or hindered your career, which is encouraging. We do have other members of Heterodox Academy, too, who have written about how, they're, as conservatives, they feel like their overall experience has been positive, and they're, they're happy they chose a career in academic life. Yes. My, I would say that my experience is positive, but a little bit
1: mixed. It is positive in the sense that I certainly have gotten a lot of support, I enjoy the work that I do, I love teaching. And I'm surrounded by smart and dedicated colleagues, and I'm very much a part of my academic community. So I don't have a sense of stigmatization or discrimination. And, and in fact, as, as I said, I feel I feel supported. I also think that that I've benefited in a way because as a having a minority voice, so to speak, on a number of issues, in a sense, has given me a particular role to play that I, I feel I actually add to the diversity of views on campus in a way that perhaps some more progressive leaning colleagues do, do not. So I, I do think I have a distinctive contribution to make, and I think that's valuable. At the same time, of course, because my leanings are more to the right, I do get irritated at administrator rhetoric about social justice or any other progressive issues that are touted by perhaps not even so much faculty as, as administrators. And, and like many colleagues who lean to the right, I am also concerned about the, the homogeneity, the ideological homogeneity of many college campuses. I was uh, intrigued by the article by Chris Smith in the Chronicle recently, where he uh, called BS on the what he called the grossly lopsided political ideology of the faculty of many disciplines, and so on and so forth. And I agree with that assessment.
0: I think that's a assessment that Jonathan Haidt and Lee Jessam and Jared Crawford and several others would share. That was the Actually, the basis for founding Heterodox Academy, that was one of the articles that started it all.
1: Exactly. And I I, I greatly appreciate his and your initiative to make Heterodox Academy possible.
0: Well, thank you. And on that note, I think this would be a good time to wrap up. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts? No, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Chris.